You're listening to the Volleyball by Design podcast. Today, we got a great episode for you. We got a three time national champion coach, uh, actually, four time, one as a player, three as a coach, and he's done it three times in a row at the 18U level, which is uh, pretty, pretty impressive. Um, I will, I will also say this episode is a very, very note heavy episode. I guess I'll call it that. We we dive into a ton of strategy and tactics and high, high level volleyball conversation. Um, I, I it came to a point where I I felt the need to start defining terms because we were going at such a, uh, a rapid pace of, you know, all these tactics and technical things that he teaches. And of course, he's a three-time national champion. So there's a lot of high-level things that he's done with his team. So even if you are a beginner coach, it's still going to be a great episode because I, I do define and explain a lot of things. And if you are a you know, anything from a club coach, high school coach, this is one conversation you definitely want to hear. Um, it's well worth it. Uh, and he's had a lot of success coaching at the high level. So yeah, uh, I want to, I want you guys to just understand that you might, you might want to take some notes. I might want to listen to this maybe twice to get all, all the info that was uh, discussed, but it's an episode you don't want to miss. So stay tuned. Hi, I'm Coach Brian Singh, and after a number of years coaching competitive volleyball and as the head coach of the biggest college in Canada, I've become obsessed with helping coaches improve their knowledge and skills of the game by teaching them how to coach efficiently and effectively to ultimately reach their volleyball goals. I created the Volleyball by Design podcast to give you simple, actionable, step-by-step strategies so you can get clarity and apply what you learn right away. This is the Volleyball by Design podcast. What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to episode 157 of the Volleyball by Design podcast. How is everyone doing out there today? Uh, for my new listeners, welcome to the pod. My name is Coach Brian Singh. I'm the host of the podcast. And for my regular listeners, as always, thank you so much for tuning into another episode where the goal, just like every episode, is to give you uh, tangible step-by-step strategies, things of value that you could take back to your gym right away. And as you know, you know, in every episode that we do here, uh, I don't want you to be sitting here for an hour hoping that you can take some things away. This is a, these are episodes where you can literally grab a pen and paper or your phone and start taking notes from the beginning because it is stuff that is that is really just it's valuable that you can apply to your team, you know, right away. And that's why I created the podcast. What am I? What are we in? Three years? Three years ago now? It's kind of it's kind of crazy. It's been that long. Um, and as you would have seen in the title, I have a special guest on a returning guest. Um, however, this time we're going to talk more coaching instead of club aspect of uh, of the game. And this particular coach, three time national champion, not not provincial champion, not state champion for my friends across the border, but we're talking national champion, three time national champion. Uh, and that's, that's the best in Canada at the 18 U level. And in addition to three time champion, three times in a row. Now winning one national championship is hard. Winning two. Now that's, that's even harder winning three. Now we're starting to talk about legendary category. When you start talking about three national championships, especially in a row, which means every, which means every year that he's attended a national championship uh, he's won in addition to also winning as a player, uh, back in 08. So I'm extremely privileged, uh, to welcome to the podcast, Jesse Sadie. What's up, man? How are you doing? What's up, Brian? Thanks for that intro, man. That's uh, nice of you to say. Yeah, no, of course, bro. I listen as much as we're friends, I, I learn from you all the time and I'm, I'm super excited to dive in 
to this interview um really quickly just you know uh, i know people have um probably already heard of you but that i mean mind you that was a year ago so you might they may not have uh, a, a quick intro of who you are uh what you're all about how you got into coaching uh you know just really a couple minutes of your story yeah i guess uh you know i'm the you know i manage pac-man volleyball club that's my club uh you know i've been in that you know i've been with pac-man since i was a player in 2003 and then, you know, for the last 10 years now, you know, I've been helping run that club and, you know, helping build the health league programs, helping build the, you know, rep programming. Uh, yeah, I've been, I've been coaching since I was, you know, since I was young, I've been coaching since I was 16, you know, as, as a high school kid running camps and stuff to help pay for my fees. And now right. it's, you know, it's been my full-time career uh, for a long time. And, uh, you know, I've had a lot of experience coaching now, you know, at the club level and, you know, I've been doing 18U a lot the last few years. So, you know, Having that success has been really good, but I've, you know, always coached other ages, 14U, 15U, 16U. Um, I'm a beach, I'm the head beach volleyball coach at the club. So every summer since 2009, you know, I've been uh, coaching beach volleyball. You know, we've, you know, we've racked up, you know, 40 plus provincial championships in our beach program, almost 30 national championships in our beach program. And, you know, a lot of really good athletes have come out of there, you know, Shawan Vernon Evans being one of them, uh, you know, a, a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, notable you know, volleyball guys have, uh, have been in that system. So I'm right. just here to, you know, I'm a coach. I love to coach. Uh, we get great kids in the program and, and, you know, my job is to try to, you know, build Pac-Man and try to make it the, make it the best club or, you know, not just, uh, in the country, but, you know, hopefully get a little bit of a international love too one day. Well, I can say with, with pretty, I can say with certainty that Pac-Man is by far the biggest club in the country. I don't think it's argued there. You guys have what ninety seven hundred athletes in that club? Yeah, that's like our in a year uh, we have around that. That is insane. Now, that that's almost as big as the entire OVA, is it not? Yeah, I think OVA is like just like over ten thousand, something like that. So yeah, in a year we're at that number. You know, I you know people don't realize how big our house leagues are. People don't realize that our businesses we we teach kids how to play volleyball, where we give you know, high school kids that have very little experience opportunities to play. Like, you know, everyone always looks at our rep teams, but, you know, I think there's a lot of clubs that have the same, maybe if not more rep teams than us, you know, we've got 12 U to 18 U boys and girls, you know, two teams for each, you know, each, each group. So we have about 25, 26 teams, but that's only 300 athletes, right? Yeah. So when you hear, when you hear that number of 9,700, like people don't realize like, whoa, like, you know, outside of rep, um, we're really out here providing opportunities for kids in Brampton, Mississauga, Oakville, Milton, you know, our facility being right off the 401, tons of people from Toronto, Etobicoke now. So we're, yeah. our, our reaches, our reach is pretty big. And I think, you know, we love the rep teams and the success that they have, but trust me, man, we're, we're, we're proud of the fact that we, we can say we coach almost 10,000 kids a year. You know, it's funny. I'm going to give you my personal opinion here. And I've, you know, I've been in the game for a long time, like yourself. And as a college coach, I get the opportunity to work with multiple different clubs when they invite me out. And, and a lot of people like to, you know, pitch ideas to me about programming and things like that. And I can say that I think the biggest difference in your club and many clubs that I have the opportunity to work with is that you have one subtle difference. Clubs that I've worked with, they're all about, we want to run high performance, high performance, this competitive, this, and they're so focused on producing the best athletes in the province or the country rather that they forget about why we do this in the first place. And that is to get kids playing volleyball and growing this game. And you guys 
have done probably the best that I've ever seen and having that be the pillar of your program. What is your job? We want to get more kids playing. And it's as simple as that. And when you subtly shift that mindset to just having that, we want to get kids in the gym playing and enjoying the sport that we love, all of a sudden, 9,700 athletes later, national championships later, and it's not not a surprise why you're successful. Anyway, that's my opinion. I, I applaud you guys for doing that. I think that's the right way to go, and I wish more clubs had that vision because I, uh, really- I appreciate that. Man. I, I absolutely appreciate that. And, you know, it's funny. You see, you see people losing the essence of coaching, right? Like the essence of coaching is, you know, just having kids in the gym that just love the sport, you know? Yeah. But then you start you start getting into this realm where you start seeing other people where it's like they only want to coach the best of the best, the elite of the elite. You know, why am I coaching seven-year-olds? Like I should only be coaching. And it's really like, you know, today we're going to talk a lot about coaching. And that's always been my coaching philosophy is like I'm a coach. So, you know, whoever you put in front of me, whatever, 12 athletes, 20 athletes, 80 athletes, you know, my my job is to coach them and find the best way to do that. And and I've always had this saying that I've said to my to my players when I have them at, you know, when, when I have my teams, I, I say there's no team, there's no player bigger than the team and there's no team bigger than the club. You know, we, 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 we circulate and revolve everything around the club coming first and foremost, you know, even my time and energy, you know, my, my job towards the house leagues and, you know, is the most important thing. Yeah. So even me, I don't, I don't prioritize my rep players any more than the seven-year-olds and the eight-year-olds. Right. You know, and I find that you create a bit of that aura and that energy and and then you realize that you have these kids playing for purpose, you know, yeah, no team yeah. is bigger than the club. So you got to fight, you got to give them some purpose to play with. So right, we've done a good job over the years, building this club culture that, you know, kids come on their team and they're, they're playing for more than just their coach. You know, they're playing for their, yeah. for their clubs. So I think that's yeah, the well, key. Yeah, man. And I want to, one last thing, and then we're getting, I know our listeners want to hear more coaching than us talk about <laughs> the success of your club, which I get, but I'll, I'll, I want to say one other thing. It's, it, it, it was funny. So years ago, I got invited to speak at a, at a club. I, w- I was working with their coaching staff just to, you know, do a session on whatever. I can't remember what the topic was, but I was doing a session. And the, the club director opened up, uh, and this was in the summer, right? They opened up by saying, this, this, I kid you not, this was like the vision. It was, we don't want to be the Honda of volleyball. We want to be the BMW and the Mercedes of volleyball. I was like, what are you guys talking? I was thinking, like, what, what is he going with this? They want to attract Again, they're basically saying they want people who can who can afford it. And if you can afford it, then we're going to give you the best training to create high performance teams. And it was like that was that bit. They're like, they don't we don't want to sell the Honda Civics. We don't want the Honda Civic clientele. We want the Mercedes and Beamer. And I was I, I, I almost left, but I didn't because they were paying to be there. But uh, I was like, are you guys kidding? That's what, that's what, and, and little, you know, I'm not surprised that club has not been doing well or hasn't won national championships, all that stuff because. They're focused on the wrong things. Now, granted, there is a time and a place without a doubt to focus on high performance. And, you know, people do want to pay for another experience. Absolutely. I 100% believe in that. But that cannot be a vision of an entire volleyball youth club. Like, Absolutely. if you're running high performance only, like, whatever, fine. But anyways, I don't, I don't want to dwell on that. But I couldn't <laughs> believe it. Anyway, that was, uh, I was taking away. So anyways, okay, let's, um, let's move on to some coaching. I know our listeners want to hear talk about coaching. So three-time national championship or national champion, rather. Um, obviously, you have a proven system that works. Uh, let's talk about that. I asked Coach Chris Wilkins, same thing when he came on the pod, 12 provincial championships in a row as well. I want to start off by, by an open-ended question. When you hear three-time national champion, um, what, do you, what do you think about? How do you think about, like, you're, you're coming into, into this season. By the way, congratulations. I'm, again, taking over another 18U team that you're going to try to win another national champion with. Uh, 
what is your, what is your approach now? You're starting a new team. You've already proved that you can win a national championship. You have a new team now. So this is, this is even different. You have a new team now. What is your approach going to be to uh, get this team to that national championship level? And I want you to take the floor and tell me exactly what your vision is, what your plan is to get to another national championship. Yeah. So, you know, for 18, you know, three times at 18, U was, you know, even when I hear it, it sounds crazy. Cause that's a, you know, 18 is a tough time to win. That's like the culminating, yeah. you know, and that's just 18 U, right? Like some, you know, we've won at 15 U, 16 U. Those, you know, those years aren't as tough. It's bulk, right. bulk control. If you spent your whole season on bulk control, bulk control touches, touches, you're going to put your team in a position to, to win. And, and we've had many of those years, but at 18 U, there's so many things. So I, I've done it twice with a group of kids that I've had 15, 16, 17, 18 for a couple of years. Right. And I've done it once where I inherited a team. Uh, and then in, in, in one year, we, we found a way to make it work. There were two other years that we lost in the pandemic that I inherited that I, that I felt very confident we would have, you know, been in a situation to be in the finals or make a push. But I think what it is, is, you know, you've got to find the, the two or three or four most important things that, you know, encompass like a really good team. Like what makes a really good team at 18U? Like, and, and I look at it like what, like, instead of just saying 18 like what makes a really good team at the next level? Because what we're trying to do is we're trying to make our guys translate at the next level, right? So I think a, a couple of things is, you know, block, blocking is a really tough, challenging thing to do at the next level, especially as, you know, teams are good at passing, they're bigger, they run fast offense. So blocking is one thing that, you know, on day one, we put a lot of emphasis on. On day one, you know, there was a coach years ago that taught me, you always do the hardest things on day one because it takes the longest to process, you know? Sometimes we get caught in this thing of volleyball, like when you teach young kids where, you know, you do all the easy stuff and then you wait till later for the hard stuff to like prep them. Where I'm of this mindset now, it's like, no, we've got we've to put all of our eggs in the blocking basket, you know, on day one. And, and then we got to put our eggs in, in how we want to run our offense. And a big part of having success is making sure you have your, you know, your pipes and your bicks and your C balls and, and, you know, having a pretty seamless offense. And again, those things are challenging to do as well. So I find that, I focus a lot on blocking. I focus a lot on our uh, offense, you know, especially in transition. Um, and those are things that we work really hard on in the beginning and try to push our teams to do, even if it means not having success in October, November, December, January, right? Like, like I don't want to beat a team 25-18 in November if we didn't run one C-ball or one pipe or if we didn't try to set the middle in transition, you know? So we have this kind of, you know, it's not a physical thing, but, you know, we go through this checklist with our team before each tournament of, okay, what are the things that we want to accomplish? You know, what are the things that we want to do? Um, so, you know, how many, you know, running the pipe, running the sea ball, running middles in transition, having a bit of a creative offense, you know, blocking is tough. It just gets better over time, but same thing. How do we block? You know, we, we want every single guy blocking the same way outsides with the two-step middles with the three-step, you know, I'm a big, uh, I'm big on the, uh, and I know, you know, I actually learned it from Dan Lewis and the national team, but I'm a big uh, proponent of that kind of 60-40 stance. I don't know if you're familiar, Brian, but you probably are just a little bit of lean slightly towards the pin, uh, you know, just so that we can, you know, be quick to the pin if we need to, but then we're in a good position to help block in the middle. And I'm big on, you know, I know how the athlete's brain works. I know how kids are. If you can physically put them in a specific stance, for a specific reason, like guys, like, hey, I'm like, I'm only in this position for, for one reason or two reasons to, 
to be fast to go to the pin and cross over or to help in the middle. So sometimes if you just let a kid stand there 50-50 on the outside, you know, they're just standing there. Maybe they get a little lackadaisical. They're not focused. So I try to make it so that we put these kids in this position and the whole time it's like, okay, I'm only here for a reason. And then you, then we can hold them a bit more accountable. So I know at 18 U, things like blocking and, and running, you know, having a pretty elusive offense is, is, is really the main thing that I'm trying to do in the beginning of the year. Uh, and then holding them accountable throughout the tournament. So, you know, we like this year, especially we had a really up and down, you know, regular season, if you would say, but it was just part of the process of, you know, uh, trying to get sharper and better. And then, you know, when, when I watch my team at provincials, I think you were at provincials, we chatted for a bit after, you know, we were, we were clicking, like we were sea ball pipe, middle and transition. And even at high risk plays, like even like, you know, you know, one play that sticks out, we're in the national finals in the third set. And we, like, we ran a pipe in transition at like 13, like 12, 11 or something, you know, or, you know, 12, 10 or 13, like something, you know, usually young kids, especially like when they get down to the stretch, no, 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 set left, set high ball left side or set, set your best guy in the easy ball. And that really clicked on me. And that was years of getting my setter to like really understand how we want our offense to run. Like, like we ran a pipe you know, at 13, 13, 11, and we scored, you know, so uh, that it's weird. Eh? You spend all this time, all these months, you know, sometimes you have years with the team. Sometimes you only have one year and then it always boils down to that, you know, one or two plays, you know, right down to the end. So that, that's kind of always my thing is find the things that are the hardest to do and just drill, try to drill them in early on right away. Cause especially if you're coaching a team for one year, you know, you only have X amount of time. You've only got eight months. So you got to try to make sure that you make it work right away. Okay, this is good. I'm going to dive into a bunch of things here. So find two. Or th- would you say that the two or three things that you are going to find this season, are they all relatively the same normally, or does that differ based on the personnel you have? Yeah, so I think, and I learned this from, uh, I, I attended a seminar years ago, and it was uh, Preston was speaking. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about like, you know, SWOT analysis, strengths, weaknesses. Every year you have a team, you sit there and you, you write your personnel down, you write your rosters down and you write every kind of player strength and weakness, every team, you know, what you think the strengths are of your team. And then you sit there and you, you know, and, and, and then you really dive through in terms of, okay, what type of team do we want to be this year? You know, based on what we have. Right. So I remember 2018, you remember that team, Xander Ketrzynski, mm-hmm. Cole. So I had... Like I had six, I had six, nine, six, seven, six, six at the pins. Right. Yeah. And then I had six, six and six, five. And I had a kid coming off the bench, six, eight in the middle. Right. And then sod shake was, you know, six, two, six, three, almost. Right. So that year, for example, you know, of course you want to have a, you always want to have a creative offense. You always want to run the back row. You always want to have as many options as possible, but trust me, we weren't too concerned with being too fast that year. You know, right. we weren't too concerned with trying to beat the block by the speed. We were more like focused on passing the ball, you know, uh, be really good at high ball offense, you know, do a lot. Want to make sure every single guy can set a high ball if it's a bad pass uh, and make sure the six, eight, six, nine guys can, can hit at their peak. You know, maybe they're not, uh, you know, what, what's the term? I don't want to say athletic because they're freakishly athletic, but maybe yeah. they're not agile enough to be super fast. But, you know, just a nice enough rhythm where, you know, we can have them hitting at the top of the pin. But we are not trying to be too, too fast. That's for sure, you know. Where now this year, you know, my pins were 
six one, six three, six feet. My setter is like you know five nine, five eight, yep. five ten. Yep. My my, you know my tallest middle was six five, but then my other middle was six two. So we didn't have the luxury of height, but our best strength was our passing. We were a really good passing team, you know, really good. I had a you know two amazing liberos that when they're on the court, they pass half the court. Our, our left sides could, you know, we, we put all of our eggs in that basket. I knew early on, I'm like, this team's not going to be huge. You know, I knew this team was going to be, we're going to have to rely on ball control craftiness. So this year we tried to be faster. We tried to really focus on the footwork of the hitters. You know, what step we wanted the hitters to be on when the, when the setter had the ball in their hands. And some guys were a little faster than others. You know, some guys could do it. Some guys were a little slow. But we had to maintain some level of speed. You know, we, we knew our pipe had to be a bit faster. So we actually needed our setter to really take the reins and put us in a position to, you know, have success against bigger teams. So similar thought process for both teams, but based on the, the big, the size discrepancy, one, one focus had to be based on speed, you know, where the other focus had to be based on, you know, hey, let's just make sure we, everyone's good at setting high balls. Let's make sure that, you know, the, the, you know we, we can set a little higher and maximize the height of our, you know, we had the presence in the middle, so we knew we didn't have to be overly fast um, and just make sure we don't, you know, you know, we don't shank too many balls. Keep it in play. Everyone's able to set a high ball. When you have when you have six, nine on the, at the pin, you know, that's a, that's a good that's a good thing to have. So that that's just surely based on how well you know your team and how well you examine your team in the beginning of the year. You know, figure out what the strengths are, figure out the weaknesses, figure out your best, you know, your best players or your best, you know, options you know that you know you're going to use down the stretch and then how do you how do you utilize that you okay, know so no i like that so it seems like hey when, when, when you have a bigger team and when i say bigger team for coaches out there like relative to your league you know well clearly yeah. th- that that 18 u team that's a that's a that's a good pretty good oua team as well i'd say in terms of size so uh, with, without a doubt that's a big team so yeah so you at that point you weren't concerned about speed you were concerned about ball control passing so that when you are in system then you can let their athleticism and yeah. high end stuff you know go to work and convert for you and then with a smaller team uh you realize that well you do need to focus on speed now because you know without being concerned the one-on-ones become way more vital than you would if you had you know bigger teams and or bigger players fair enough so with the team that you had this year i think can kind of resonate more with our listeners in the event that they don't have, you know, not everyone gets the luxury of having like, like yourself too, you know, not ever you get that big team. Uh, your two or three things that you would focus on, you said, uh, so blocking is, is, is always a thing that you're it's a, a pillar for you, right? Is that right? Blocking, yeah. Uh, yeah. running a, a, an offense, a creative offense, a consistent offense and things like that. Were, were, were those your two big ones, uh, blocking and running an offense? Was there any other yeah, third or fourth big thing? You know, yeah, those are the two kind of main, like, you know, I mean, don't like, listen, every practice we have to serve and pass for an hour, right? Okay. You never forget. Yeah, yeah. of course. And I, you know, sometimes I forget about saying that because (laughs) it's just embedded. It's just not, it's just normal. It's just part of the process, right? You, you have, we have to serve and pass for 50 minutes, 45 minutes, one hour, you know, we just have to do it. That's like our, so of course, because yeah, serving and and yeah, when you don't have a big team, uh, a big blocking team, you know, you have to find ways to serve that much tougher. You got to find ways to, you know, keep the other teams out of system as much as possible. So serving and passing is always a big thing for us. And then, you know, just being very creative with that. Um, because like I said, you know, you know, you're going to serve and pass every practice. You don't want that. Those are the two most important skills. I think even at every level, even at the next level, you see serving as like a huge, you know, 
tool, like especially with the big spin servers, passing is always going to be important. I find that I got to make sure that we don't bore our players when it comes to the two most important skills. Yeah. Because like, well, like, yeah, just, okay, three passers go, everybody serves, but you have to find ways to be very creative. You have to find ways to do different types of drills. You have to yeah. find ways to chip in extra balls. You have to find ways to, you know, isolate certain scenarios that happen more often. Like, for example, out-of-body passing, right? You have to create scenarios where, okay, like, I need my lib to have to pass these balls out of body. So start them in a more compromised position, you know, make a move like, like something, right? So yeah. I find that serving and passing is important and having a bit of creativity and, and variance there is important so that they can be motivated and have fun doing that in practice. And then, you know, we get to the portion of our practice where we game play slash, you know, running offense. And then where we're, where we're focusing on, you know, okay, now we have to focus on what type of team we want to be, what we want our blocking style to be like, what our hitting style is. So that's, you know, chipping balls in, running offense against blocks. Yeah. But being very patient with that throughout the year, talking about these scenarios and, you know, and what we want to see and where yeah. we want to run, you know, do we, do we want to run a 60 pipe here? Do we want to run a push pipe here? Do we want to, so again, and, and it's part of the process of also providing the guys with so much information and teaching them so many things so that when they go somewhere at the next level, uh, they, they can be ready to play right away. You know, yeah. like not every guy on this team got an offer to play volleyball somewhere, but a part of me wished that they did because although they don't have maybe the size, you know, I can assure you that any one of those guys could have filled in a position somewhere and they could have stepped in like seamlessly, like with very minimal coach yeah. having to explain, like yeah. they knew the steps, they knew tempo timing, all they know the verbiage, you know, they know all the terminology. Yeah. Uh, you could have, you could have got a kid on your roster that would be ready to go if you needed to. So we pride ourselves on that too. You know, we, we look at the, we look at the OUA and OCA All-Stars every year. There's a big percentage of those, yep. you know, first team, second team All-Stars that come from our club. And, and yep. you know, we we have a lot of them that can contribute in year one and year two. And we pride ourselves on that. Okay. No, perfect. All right. Let's, let's, let's go back to blocking. I, li- I like this one because blocking is a challenge. Yeah. I love, I love that. You always do the hardest thing on day one because it takes the longest to process that. I love that quote. Um, you did mention the outsides with two step middle with three steps. So I'll explain it to our listeners. Then you can tell me, correct me if I'm wrong here. So basically the, the ideal is that when you have a pin blocker, you don't need your pin blocker taking three steps. You want to get to the pin as fast as possible. So the way that we teach it is you, you, you put your weight on your, let's say, let's say for example, um, you're blocking, you're blocking a left side attack. Okay. So you're a right side player blocking the left side attack. What you do is you, you slightly put your weight on your right foot and just get that little lean to that thing, but it's a subtle shift in weight. So you're not parallel. You're not straight up. So your weight is not distributed evenly when you're in your IDP, your blocking position. So you subtly put your weight on your right foot. And that what that's going to do is that the minute that setter manipulates the ball, your momentum is already in that direction. And then it's just crossover step, plant and jump. So one, two, and then jump. And that's the way to get, you know, get me fast to the pins. Also, because your weight is on your right foot, it enables you to still help in the middle if you choose or if your blocking system allows that. Is there any, did I get that wrong or is that kind of how you guys do it? That's uh, that's exactly it. And, uh, you know, we use the term 60-40, you know, 60% of your weight is on that right foot. Yeah, that's a good And then we'll use terms and, you know, this is good for the listeners that, you know, that'll be writing things down. But, you know, a really good way to, to make the athletes understand better and get them to do it is, you know, in conjunction with that 60-40 in the body position, we use terms like help help versus priority, you know? 
So 60% of your weight is on that leg because you're, as a pin blocker, your priority is the left side, the, the, you know, the outside hitter. That's your priority. That's your, you know, we, we don't go 60, 40 in the other direction because we don't need your priority to help the middle. Like we just want you to help the middle if you can, because you know, the last thing you want is uh, a pin blocker to overcommit and help too much in the middle. That's when you get burned, especially with good teams and good centers that, you know, like to run an overload offense. So uh, we'll use terms like help versus priority to really make the athletes, okay, 40% of your weight is on the inside because it's just to help. Even if it's one hand, one finger, you know, if you can get two hands, we try to make that aspect of it a little more, you know, just hey, help only. And then, but then you're, you're 60% of your weight the other way because that's your priority. Don't get burned, you know, get, get to the pin or, or take the line away, take the crossway. So I found that that's been a helpful tool, mm-hmm. uh, you know, community, you know, uh, for, to communicate to the athletes, to make them really understand. Yeah. We, we practice the same thing. And then, <laughs> and then if we're playing a team, which we scout ahead of time where their middle offense is, you know, one of their lower percentage options, there's no help. You're, you're, yeah. you're already had, you're already good to go momentum and, and kind of go from there. All right. Beautiful. Let's, let's go back to blocking now. So you all start, you know, the day one, we're starting blocking. You come into your gym, you have your team. What exactly are you teaching them on day one of blocking? And after day one of blocking, what is your progression towards where you expect them to be? Yeah. So I find that because again, when we talk about our seasonal plan and like our periodization and, you know, I talked about kind of that checklist of things that we want to achieve every, every tournament, you know, when we talk day one, especially if I'm, especially if I'm inheriting a team for the first year that doesn't have any familiarity with the 60, 40, but the first phase is just getting used to the body position and, you know, outsides are crossing over and then blocking going up, you know, middles 50, 50, small step crossing over. So the first phase is really just understanding the, the, the motor pattern, right? That's phase one, you know, and then, and then as the season progresses, then it's like, okay, now we have to go back to, now we have to really focus on eye sequence, you know, because sure, you can be really great at body position and you can cross over real aggressively, but if you're not getting to the right spot, then, you know, frankly, you're not a good blocker, right? So, so you know, then we get to things like eye sequence and getting to the right spot. And, you know, then as the season progresses, you know, things have to get better. Like as teams get better at passing and teams get faster set at setting, we, you know, we've got to close a bit better. We've met, then the next phase is talking about those, little nuanced things like diving in, you know, uh, especially if you're one-on-one, you know, uh, sealing the tape, um, you know, and then as we get later, then it's about, then as the season progresses towards the end, then you just start adding little layers of things like, you know, reminding guys to penetrate. Cause now they're, now they know the motor pattern. Now they know exactly where to go, but now they're jumping straight up, you know? So then we got to add the layer of no, now we have to press, you know? So we like to use little tools like those, those rub those bands that go across the antenna to antenna. So guys are pushing through. So, so that would be something we would just try to continue to get better at. And then the layer of triple blocking and, you know, things like that. So um, I think I've said this on your podcast before with coaches, but I said, uh, I always say like coaches, sometimes they do a bad job of teaching everything they know in the first 30 days of their season, you know, and, and in a nine month season, like if you teach every single thing, you know, in 30 days, you're going to have a hard time, you know, having continuing to motivate guys or keeping them engaged in practice. So yeah, I won't talk about all of those things in the beginning. I'll, I'll literally add layer after layer for layer. Maybe it's tournament after tournament. Maybe it's season predicated, you know, now with these things like, you know, you know, the NEP program, right? Like, you know, I had a kid on my team who, who didn't join us until December, 
you know, that could be the new norm in ATNU. So uh, there's not like an exact timing wise uh, in terms of when you add these layers. It's more of like a, we add it as we need it. You know, I definitely don't want to talk about all of it right away. I, I want them to struggle. I want them to be in the right spot, but not penetrate and see what happens. You know, there was a point where we were struggling real bad with blocking this year, like really bad. Uh, we were just all over the place. And there was a three week stretch in practice where I said, guys, we're, we're going to block ball every single time, no matter what. So, you know, fronting the hitter yep. and you must get a touch on the ball. If a hitter, if that ball crosses you and it doesn't hit your hand, you've got three, like, you know, you've got three dives on the side to go back. I'm like, I don't care if you get tooled or if you're late or if you're early, you need those reps of, you need that ball to hit your hand and all those million different angles and, you know, at the net to know what's right and what's wrong. Because if you're a guy that keeps, you know, blowing by and drifting and you never touch, you'll never have any understanding of what it feels like to even, you know, get your hand on the ball or, you know, subtly drop your inside hand, like little nuanced things that blockers need to do. So we went on a three week stretch where we're like, guys, you have to block ball and you have to get the touch. A ball cannot cross the net unless the guy jumps and volleys at 50 feet in the air. I'm like, that ball cannot cross you without it touching your hand. Uh, and then, like I said, then it started getting to the point where I was okay, now, now we're getting to the spot, but now we're jumping a bit late. Now we're drifting a little bit. Now we're not penetrating. But they needed those three weeks of those hundreds and hundreds of touches of the ball just banging off their arms. You know, so sometimes you got to put, sometimes if that's not the, the, the exact right thing to do, it's, you know, how else are we going to get those opportunities to, you know, teach the guys? So sometimes you have to, you know, go off the beaten path a bit and, and do things that are maybe a little more unorthodox to just get them to understand. So that was very helpful for us. Okay. So let's talk about training these things. So I got, I got the idea. I put down here five phases, but they're kind of trickle in once you get to the later ones. So we start with phase one, understanding motor patterns. So I'm going to interpret that as footwork. Is that right? Yep. Okay. So body, how are body we position, you know, footwork body footwork. position. Okay. So let's talk about training that. How do you train that? So, I mean, we, we usually start, we'll, we'll always start very easy. Just give the guys an opportunity. Like, you know, we'll have a double gym like teach it, work on it, and then give the guys an opportunity to, to go in their spots and go in their courts and just, and then just work on the, work on the mechanic itself, the jumping and the go, you know, the, the, the angled weight crossing over jumping. So we're training it very, uh, you know, like phase one, like, you know, very introductory. And then from there where we'll, we'll add it into small groups, you know, groups of three and four, you know, just one doesn't even have to be a setter one setter, one attacker who's just tipping, right? And then one blocker. And then, you know, adding in that phase of eye sequence, you know, and then from there, we're adding it into live gameplay stuff, you know, and then okay. we're trained. And then by training it in gameplay, we're adding parameters in gameplay. So for example, you know, it's funny. I'm funny. I, I can, there's probably a thousand coaches in our club that will listen to it and say, Jesse, man, you're giving away all the secrets, dude. You're giving away all the secrets. <laughs> but I'm laughing because I know it's not what you're teaching. It's how you're teaching it, right? So that's yeah, why I know yeah. I'm not. Because you know, I could give, I could leave my book of secrets somewhere, and I would never, I would never be that worried. Because how yeah. you do it is the most important thing. But but again, more. so it's uh, so then we we would use our setters to just help us create some parameters. So like, let's say you know we really worked on this whole sixty forty thing, right? Yeah, you're only there yeah. to either prioritize the pin or help block in the middle. So then when we do modified gameplay, you know, serve ball, chip in a couple free balls, we'll really force the setters to run sequences to put the pressure on the blocker. So either 30 left side sequence or 60 right side sequence. So, so never run like a 60 and left side, like, like no separation basically. Right. Yeah. You're literally just 
attacking that one blocker or putting pressure on the middle blocker and the pin blocker to make a decision. Uh, yeah. 30 left side, 30 left side, 30 left side, 60 right side, 60 right side, 50 pipe, 50 pipe, you know. So so we, we use the gameplay, add parameters to help build those that those phases of blocking. And, and again, because the guys need the whole, you know, I'm a big believer and obviously it's part of our NCCP uh, coaching, you know, certification, but a big believer in the whole cue reading decision-making. You need to, yeah. you need to, you can't, you know, yeah, you can tell them and, you know, have them line up and do it a thousand times. You need to put them in an environment where they're reading cues and making decisions. So, uh, the better the better job you can do as a coach to to create parameters that allow that to happen more often, then the the better your team is going to get. Yep, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, it's arguably the toughest skill in the game: reading, reading, cue reading, and decision making. That's uh, yeah, without yeah. a doubt. Okay, so let me just recap here. You got so they come in, they do their motor footwork patterns, body position, all that stuff. You walk it through it, small groups. They get the footwork done, then we throw, then we'll throw in a, a setter, a hitter. Uh, you know, this is this is very progress. This is common. You know, this is how you progressively work towards blocking. I'm pretty sure many people do this in the gym. Um, in terms of eye sequencing, are you looking for anything specific? Or is it the basics? You know, ball setter, ball hitter. Are you adding a layer onto that? What are you guys looking for for eye sequencing? You know what? You know, sometimes I like to sometimes I like to go to the extreme. I learned this from another coach in our club years and years ago. But everyone knows the basic uh, eye sequence, right? Ball center, ball hitter. Yep. Uh, sometimes we like to go to the extreme and just go ball hitter only. Yeah. Watch the pass. And then to really, really train the hitter or the blockers, it's just, hey, once you see the pass, uh, lock your eyes on the hitter. The hitter will tell you everything that you need to know about what the attack is. So I know sometimes when they struggle with a ball setter, ball hitter, well, maybe, especially with older athletes, we'll take it a bit more to the extreme and say, hey, you're now just, once you see the pass, just look at your hitter and that's it. And even so, if you're, if I'm the right side blocker and I'm staring at that left side attacker, uh, if the pass is made and that hitter doesn't move, then, okay, then that means he didn't get the set. You know, it's just like, we yeah. try to really yeah. make it so that, that like the hitter will tell you everything, right? Get to the right spot, the sh- get to the hitting shoulder, yeah. you know, whether you're blocking line, ball or cross. So yeah, I like the eye sequence, you know, obviously, you know, we, we really try to make the hitters look at the setter's hands to see where the ball is going. But yeah. in that training phase, we'll, we'll, we'll take it a bit more extreme and say, you know what, just watch a hitter. They will tell you everything. The more you lock into that hitter, the more data you'll get, the more cues you'll see, and then the better decisions you'll make. So I like to, you know, like I said, I like to mix it up a bit and, yep. and sometimes, yeah, take it to the extreme a bit more. Yeah, I know. You know what? I, you're not wrong about that. Like we do the same thing. We have different eye sequencing for middles versus pin blockers. Uh, yeah. We modify it slightly for them. Again, like you said, at the higher level, you, you're, you're the, the main thing is a hitter. Like this, the setter is great. Don't get me wrong. There's certain players that have to, like, if we're fronting the setter for whatever reason, then yeah, you know, our guys are going to go up to the setter if we're giving the seed ball away. Like there's certain strategies and things like that, but yeah, I, I absolutely couldn't agree more. Okay. So then you talked about diving in, sealing the tape. Uh, what does diving in mean? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, especially at the club level, uh, cross court is generally the most common attack from most hitters, especially if a hitter is presented with one or no block. Right. So, you know, depending on the hitter, you know, a lot of it has to do with the data as well. There are hitters out there that, you know, maybe don't hit cross. Like, again, this comes with how well you know your division as well. How know you, you know, that's what, that's the tricky thing of jumping into a division for one year in 18U, right? Like, mm-hmm. not only do I have to teach these guys everything in nine months, I got to learn the players on the other side. I got to learn the other teams. I don't, I don't know anyone, right? But mm-hmm. what we'll do sometimes is, uh, you know, like if, if the outside blocker senses that they're alone or the, the, 
you know, or the middle committed, or they just made a bad, bad read and what wasn't there, they would just dive in and, you know, drop the inside hand in both hands and just take full cross, you know, uh, and just take full cross and try to take something away and either get that big block or get a huge slowdown or, or force, force a line shot from, you know, hitters that generally don't, you know, most hitters, their line shots, not their best one. So, right. you know, one oh, sorry, scenario. sorry to cut you off. So do you, do you have them front the hitter and then take cross or are they like just taking cross like straight up? Yeah. So they're, they're still, they're getting to wherever they're supposed to get. So if we, if this person were blocking ball, they have to get to their body. If this person were blocking cross. So we'll get to our spot and then we'll, we'll, we'll come in even more, but usually like, well, this year, generally we were, we were front, we were getting in front of the hitter, you know, most guys hit where they face. So right. we were, uh, you know, for the most part, we'll probably block ball, right? Gotcha. Like tease the guy a little bit across and then we'll, you know, then we'll dive in and, and drop our hand a bit. But because um, I get it, man, especially in big moments, guys want the big hard cross swing, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've, we've had a bit of success doing that. And it's, you know what, it's more of a, it's like another one of those engagement things. Like if I see an athlete doing it in the moment, it means that they were, it means they identified that. Like they knew that they were alone and they did it. So whether it was right or wrong or worked or didn't work, I'm in the, I'm in the business of, you know, Hey, they're, they're making, they're making the right decisions or at least a decision, you know, in a tense environment, tense moment. It's when they drift or they don't watch the hitter or they fly by. That's where we get pissed off as coaches. Right. So, but when I see a kid go and dive in and get a slowdown, like that's where I'm, you know, that's where we're big on making sure they're, you know, they've made the right decisions or they have the right, the right amount of data and knowledge there. So just to confirm, if it's a one-on-one situation, you have your pin blocker get to their spot. Um, now, is there a spot predetermined or is there a spot relative to where the hitter is coming in on? Yeah, so it's like, you know, like every hitter, we have an assignment. This guy, we're going to block cross. This guy, we're going to block ah, line. Gotcha, gotcha, this gotcha. guy, we're going to... So every hitter that we're going to play will have some sort of assignment, you know. Uh, there are teams that will just block cross exclusively, you know. Or, or we'll do things based on, like, you know, we'll block differently in transition than we do off of service receive, for example, you know. Um, okay. So it, it'll, it'll all be a little bit predicated, but, you know, whatever we decide in the moment. But it's, it's again, it's like, it's just another one of those tools that, you know, we, we try to teach or try to teach the knowledge of. And then we'll send a reminder, like, hey, guys, like, you know, we're blocking ball on these guys. If you're one-on-one, just dive in, you know, or the tendencies are seen to doing cross court, like, take, take it away on one-on-one. Okay. So now that, so this is really good for the technical aspect of blocking. I love it. You got your phases, you got your motor patterns, eye sequencing, diving in, sealing the tape, penetrating, and then we start advancing to triple block and all that stuff. Um, is now, is there a specific block defensive system that you prefer? Example, you know, bunch read, spread read, uh, how are we set it, separating along the net, you know, things like that. Yeah. So, you know, again, it'll, it's always dependent on the team that we played yep. that we play. I want to say for most teams, it was a bit of a, it was, it was more of a spread. We, it was read no matter what, unless we told the middle in a specific rotation, like, Hey, you're going to commit. But for the most part, it was a spread read unless we played a team that like really just outmatched us in the middle. Um, you know, when we played Manitoba Bisons in the semis and they had huge medals. So there we bunched in a little bit more. Um, you know, it depends on the team. Like if a team doesn't have a, a, a threatening C ball, then we'll always front the center, you know, while when we're, you know, we'll, we'll, sorry, we'll always ask our middles to front the middle, you know, when the setter's in the front row, things like that. 
totally predicated on the team, you know. Um, but yeah, generally it's more of a spread read, but it's read no matter what, unless okay. we, unless we say, unless we get through two and a half rotations and we know on the free ball, like, you know, we know on the server seed, they're going to set the middle. We'll tell our guy, like you have to commit. Okay. Got it. Uh, just, just for some clarification for our listeners, a spread read is when all the blockers are pretty much evenly distributed along the net. Um, a bunch means they're coming more closer to the middle. So they're relatively close to the middle of the court. And when you say spread read bunch read, that just means that we're reading the, the we're reading the set. So we're not guessing, we're not committing to anything uh, in advance. We're waiting for the setter to manipulate. And then once we've made our reads and like Jesse talked about eye sequencing, we'll then be able to go and do our footwork to get out to the pins. So that's what spread and read means. Fronting the setter just means when the setter is front row, that your blocker, so your pin blocker, the, the left side blocker in this case, is going to be directly in front of the setter. So no, no matter wherever the setter goes, that, that blocker is going to follow that setter so that in the event the setter dumps, um, they'll be there and they'll be fronting them to get a, a touch on it or even a block on it. So I, I don't, I always don't like to assume, you know, every coach, but we have over 14,000 coaches that listen to this podcast. Yeah, I don't want to assume true. that all, all 14,000 understand what spread read is. And, and we have new coaches here, a lot of terminology for you guys. This is a really high high level conversation, which I, which I love by the way. So, um, feel free to, to reach out and ask if you guys have any questions, but I'm, I'm doing my best to kind of explain some of the, 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 the terminology. Cause these are, these are, this is a great conversation. Okay. We saw one last thing and then we'll, we'll close the block and then go to more of the offensive side. Uh, so we talked about the technical aspect of it, you know, your, your motor patterns, eye sequencing, diving in, sealing the tape, uh, reminding to penetrate spread, read, fronting the setter. Is there anything else that you guys do special that you think is really, really uh, strong relative to the league or, or yourself, something that makes you guys stand out in terms of blocking? You know, so, you know, going back to talking about that strengths and weaknesses, you know, of your team and so on, you know, one of, you know, one of my, uh, you know, one of the teams, you know, whenever you have a smaller setter, that's mm -hmm. always, that, that always, you know, gives the opportunity to have a blocking liability, right? Like when other teams see small setters, they like to go really heavy on the, on, on the left side. So depending on how well, you know, you know, your team and how well you, you analyze the strengths and weaknesses, simple things like a fire up, like, you know, I, I don't know if that's general terms for everybody. I know that's what we call it, but something simple as like, let's say there's a scenario where we know that they're going to set left side a lot and our setters in the front row, just a simple switch between our left side and our, you know, and our, our setter just to put up a bigger block, you know, things like that have mm -hmm. always helped us. Uh, trap blocking, like, you know, when, like I said, when you get around two and a half rotations and you, let's say you've played a team 10 times this year, you know which guy is going to get the ball, especially if it's been pin blocker, trapping and, you know, putting your two blockers out there already. Again, again, leaving holes for setter dumps and middle attacks, but kind of just, you know, having enough data, you know, to make a really educated guess saying, hey, you know what, there's a 99% there's a chance they're going to set the left side here. So we're going to take our chances on it, you know, at yeah. 12, 12 in the third set. So I think just little things like that, like we know our team really well, we know, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why this team has had a lot of success. We had a, you know, we didn't win provincials or nationals last year, but we got into a national finals and we had a lot of success with our, with our blocking, with our fire up and our trapping and our putting bigger blockers up against, you know, just maximizing what we have, you know, and, and for the viewers or for the listeners that are, you know, Double subs are common too. I, I don't always use double subs. I'll do it once in a while. Yeah, I same. know there's, a, Brian, I'm actually curious on your thoughts on it. I know there's a lot of people that love it and live live and die by it. 
I'm I I don't mind doing it based on the you know whatever the if it's in the, a game where we're trying to get some bodies in or we're trying to rest. But I've always had this thing where it's like sometimes I think it's tough to take some guys out and put new guys in, especially yeah. if things are rolling and you're doing well. I had a talk with uh, Dave Preston about it once, and he was kind of like, "No man, I, I like to stick with my six guys that are in. They're all dialed in. They're all engaged. They're locked." You know, he'd actually even he prefers a fire up over over a double sub. You know? Yeah, my thought is really simple. Um, there's one thing you have to ask yourself: Are you is your setter is your secondary setter as good as your first setter? Do they run the same tempo, the same location, the same everything? If the answer is yes, then it's something that you could potentially play with. If the answer is no, and you have a setter that's phenomenal, and the and the backup setter is not as good or doesn't push the same ball, whatever, absolutely not. I will not have a another setter come in late game situation when the points are even more important to now all of a sudden we put a ball that's maybe slower, put a ball in a different location that the, all the hitters have now been used to for an entire two, three sets, four sets. I, I would never do it. I would do exactly what you said. I would trap or I would, um, I would, I don't, I don't, we don't call it fire up. Actually, now that I think about it, I don't even know what the hell we call it. We, we they just look at me. I'm like, yep, make the switch. And, uh, yeah. and that's it. But I, funny, you said trap blocking another new term for many of our listeners. I, I've talked about it a few times on the pod. And trap blocking actually can be very different. A lot of coaches run it differently. Uh, how do you guys run your trap block? Yeah, so what we try to do is we try to make it so that, let's say we're trapping the left side, right? Okay. Common. That's so, normally when trap happens, yep. So our right side, I mean, like our right side blocker is already there. We'll send our middle blocker over right away. Yep. And then we'll, we'll put our front court left side on the middle. Right. So we'll, we'll have our front court left side come in on the middle. You know, and then, uh, you know, again, that leaves that leaves the setter dump wide open. Just tell the libero to take a step up yep. right, and be ready for it. Um, it leaves the C ball wide open, you know, strap it on, play defense, you know. Uh, but again, it's totally dependent on the circumstance. If they set a C ball and they bear it and score, you know, sometimes you have to tip your hat off to, sure. you know. Um, and I know, you know, we, we, uh, we played a team in the finals last year at 17U. And uh, we were rolling the like the whole tournament. Uh, we we're just playing really well. And you know that team actually did a really good job of uh, uh, when they saw our setter on the left, they set a lot of Cbo. You know they just very good awareness, very good setter, yeah. very well coached team. You know it was a third set close game. You know we got our we got our little bit of revenge this year at 18 U, which was nice. Yeah. But uh, I, I, you have to tip your hat off sometimes, you know, because we would do the, we would do the same thing. You know if right. we saw a fire up situation like that, but. Trapping for us is we just shift everybody over to the direction we want to trap, and then the opposite pin guys committing on the middle. You know, yeah. so that's usually our thing. Sometimes we'll maybe even sub a blocker in just to block, and then have no setter. I've done that too. You know, yep. just between six and libero or whoever. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Su- set a high ball. Don't double it, or I'm freaking subbing you out. You know, yeah, it's like this is sometimes. Yeah, no. Sometimes we have some of those moments as well. It's all a feel thing, right? Like I had two great setters this year. You know, so I really could have done any, I really could have done the double. I really could have done the fire up. You know, I've just, the fire up always seems to, it's weird. Eh? It's, it's almost like it's a play, you know, you know, when your team's running a play, uh, it's almost like they're trying a little harder or they know what they're, you know, so when we fire up, they're like, for whatever reason, they're just more dialed in. They're more, engaged. Yeah. they know, they know exactly why we're doing this, you know? So yeah. um, I would have done that. I could do the double sub happily in certain scenarios, but you know, with this team and, you know, teams in the past that fire up seemed to, to work. Okay. So, you know, I try yeah. to, 
it could be circum and you know it could mix it up man uh, i think there's value in not you know not being so uh obvious like throughout the year you know yeah, that's what yeah, i'm a big believer absolutely. in changing up the lineups mixing things up trying different things maybe i'll double sub against one team and then maybe we play them again i'll fire up you know i think it's important to not be so predictable you know yeah, actually, I think I'm going to I'm going to call this the fire up going forward because that's a really cool name. I've never I don't I've never actually had a name for it. We just know that that's what we're going to do. Is that a, is that a your term or is that just what it's known known as? I don't, you know what? I don't I remember I remember hearing that term like when I played at York, like in, oh, okay. I played at York like two, 2009 and then I, I heard it again. Like I just hey, so that's probably I, what think it is. Fi- I think I heard like I think people I've heard people call the trap the fire up, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. so I don't know. I think it's just one of those things. I don't okay. remember, and for, but it's, it's a term that's floated around and we just kind of, we just yeah. kept it like that, you know? And for those of you that are there, that might've missed what the fire up is, it's simply an, a, a tactic that's used. If you know that if you have an undersized setter and you, you believe that there's a high probability that the ball is going to go to the left side, right? So there's a mismatch for the other team to score on your undersized setter. You can just swap your setter and left side blocker. So your setter is now going to be in position four and your left side is going to be in position two. And that way you can, they can hold up a better, um, a better offense or a better block rather. And then once that, that ball gets touched, all that happens is you don't have a left side attack. It'd be, it'd be a right side conversion, a pipe um, or a, uh, or a middle. And again, it's not ideal, but that's a, that's how you, that it's a risk. Uh, but it's a calculated risk and it's a tactical risk at that. So yeah, that that's uh, that's really, really cool. Okay. Uh, I, I got another 10 minutes here. Let's transition a little bit to, by the way, this is amazing blocking stuff. This is fantastic stuff. You guys got some high level conversation on blocking from cue reading to trap blocking to, to fire up, which I'll now be calling my that play, which I don't even, I never had a name for it, but yeah. Okay. Let's talk about offense. So yeah, you mentioned running a great offense pipe um, really, especially in transition, getting the middle going, running the, you know, the C ball and all that stuff. So when you are, teaching offense you know how how do you how do you teach it what is your philosophy how do you deliver it to your players like what kind of offense are you guys talking about how does that work yeah well i think in the beginning of the i think in the beginning it's always important to teach your setters overload separation yeah give them the opportunity to try to do what they think is right you know like i always sit there like it will be in practice and we'll do gameplay scenario and i'll just say like you know what were you doing there or you know, what, what was your thought process there? And I like to do that a lot with the setters because I'm like, you know, at the end of the day, the setter has a lot of control, you know. Um, oh, no, we lost Jesse. Let's get him back. Okay, he's back. All right, go ahead. Okay, great. I'm sorry, what were we? Uh, setting, setting. Top by setting, uh, we, setting. We want yeah, to teach so, you know, run the, their... The, uh... setter, the, the setter has tons and tons of uh, control of the game. So I like to spend practice times really like, you know, what were you thinking that what were you trying to do? What were you, you know, and a lot of times I can always reason with a setter and understand what they're doing, but I always like to, to just boil it down to like, okay, find ways to separate your block, the blockers, find ways to overload. Um, especially if they, and then if they do something really good, I, I do like to take the time to stop and make everybody understand, like, this is exactly yes. what they're doing. Yes. So like anytime a setter gets a one-on-one or one-on-none, you know, um, I like to stop and say, guys, do you see what's happening here? Do you see that's what we're looking to achieve? Uh, do you see how you thought it was this, but it was actually that? So I think just the whole learning and the whole, you know, like it's okay to take time to explain these things, you know? So that that's really important for us. So we'll, we'll always start everything, uh, separation, overload. And then depending on the strengths of our team and 
especially the strength of our setters, if they're able to, you know, um, then we'll decide, you know, what we want to focus on more. In in 2019, you know, so 2018, I told you I had that massive team and big, big middles. Uh, in 2019, I had really athletic outsides with some size, um, but we were a little undersized in the middle. You mm-hmm. know, I think you remember that team. I had Luca in the middle, Nick. Mm-hmm. And these are guys that were not even like traditional middles. They just they just kind of did it and played, you know, because they we needed them to. Mm-hmm. And we had Trent, who was six seven setter, mm-hmm. and he was just really good at finding like you know long thirties, short thirties. Um, you know, those middles had great hand eye coordination. I, I don't even want to. I don't even think they hit majority of their balls. They just caught it in their hand, threw it down like that power tip. Yeah. Um, and for them, like we were really, you know, heavy on the overload offense with them because they were pretty crafty and elusive and good hand-eye coordination could get their hand on the ball, could throw it off the block. Um, with that group, especially um, it was, uh, it was, um, it, it worked out perfectly and we had so much presence in the middle and it just freed up our outsides really, really well. This year, we were probably a little more separation, you know, uh, s- smaller outsides. We really needed to just, you know, try to create as much movement for the other blockers as possible, you know, right? 60 left side, 50, even 50 left side, you know, things like when that. When you say 50 left side, do you mean like, is that your tempo? That's what you mean by a tempo set? 50, like the quick, like the, the middle, the the middle's running a 50, like a, you know, quick yeah, right uh, the so when you, when you say 50, you said 50 left side, that just still means, Oh, you just mean middle that replaces the middle. So middle goes in for a 51 or 50 yeah, yeah, and yeah, left yeah, side yeah, goes yeah, regular yeah. set. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was, I was thinking you had a play for the left side for a oh, 50. No, I'm no, like, no. this guy is jamming a, the, the, a zero five ball. Like, okay. I <laughs> no, mean, it's no, not no, bad, no, but okay. See, this is that. That's the thing. Yeah. Coaches are different. Yeah. 50 left side or 30 right side, you know? So yeah, yeah I, which makes so, sense that's actually yeah. you know what i'm sorry that's so much better than how i explain it because <laughs> it's 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 less words 50 left sides everyone knows 30 right side makes sense middle runs the three yeah. uh the three zone frees up the one-on-one behind yeah, so you know, and, we'll even and that's what down, you mean yeah. by separation yeah and then yeah. overload yeah 30 left side 60 right side yeah. you know 50 50 pipe so yeah, i try to keep it uh listen i know the modern day so uh, male, male i know the modern day male athlete you know they're not uh they need they need they need as simple as possible, you know. So I try not to. Trust me, I try not to. You know, I don't have the bright. Uh, I don't have bright university and college students, you know. But they're. Uh, we try to keep it simple because in the heat of the moment, listen. Like I, I was a setter when I played. I understand it's in the heat of the moment uh, and the lights are bright. Like it can become very overwhelming, you know. Not only are you trying to set this ball that you, you don't even have any control over where it's going in the first place, then to 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 make the best sets possible. Like, you know, I, I, I try to help my setters out a lot. You know, I'll even say like to give my setter a break, I'll say, Hey, uh, you know, uh, they're, they're really committing on the middle here, like run the 50, but set left side, you know? Uh, and he'll just, you know, you can just see the, okay, coach. And sure enough, you know, they, they put in the middle, we get a one-on-one, yeah. you know, morale stays high, you know, like you gotta, I find that with coaches, you gotta really take care of your setters, man. You have to really, really take care of them. Uh, especially because, in practices, in theory, like <clears throat> setters don't get much in practices. Uh, in a lot of practices I've seen from other clubs and other, you know, it's always like, okay, guys, gameplay. And that's like the setter's opportunity to get a chance to, you know, yeah. whereas like, you know, you do so many passing drills and serving drills and, you know, the attacking drills help your hitters. It's like, what are we really doing to help the setters out? Right. They need, yeah. like, they, they, your setter touches the ball every time. Like, I yeah. would argue just freaking run every practice 
and make the center your the, the center of everything and yeah. then the residual effect will be it'll be amazing for everybody else yeah. right so yeah. you really got to help your setter you got to keep their spirits up you got to keep them from you know getting overly excited you got to keep them poised and calm like yeah. you know i i maybe just perfect storm i was a setter back in the day so i understand what they go through i understand you know you know like a hitter hits a ball out of bounds and they tell the setter to set it higher you yeah, know yeah. Uh, i got to control that stuff i got to make sure i got to make sure my hitters don't take advantage of my setter, right? So maybe that's yeah. just me having a soft spot. But, you know, those are those are important things because, man, that setter is is everything for your offense. You know, if he's having a rough day or he's feeling overwhelmed, like you could throw all the terminology out that you want. Yeah. You know, he's going to have a tough time. So let me just recap here really quickly. This, um, the offense. And you know what? I, I love it. I, I I interviewed too, like the, the OCAA national championship uh, coach, two-time national championship from BC. And he said relatively the same thing. It was our offense is simple. It, this is, this is what we do in separation, just to, for the coaches to understand separation is, is creating that separation between the blocker, and the hitters to creating the one-on-one. The goal is to create a one-on-one or one on nothing. That's the goal. And if you run your middle on a 30, okay, then you're going to have a one-on-one on the right side. In theory, if you model, if you run your middle on a 50 or 50 or 61 or something around the, around the middle of the court, in theory, you should have a one-on-one on the left side. So that's what you define as separation, which absolutely now overload overload uh overload is basically when you when you are overloading a zone so if you have the middle for example running a 50 then that middle is attacking in that middle zone and an overload would be having a backcourt player jam that same hitting lane to free up the one on nothing in theory uh is yeah. that how you guys is that how you define your overload and or is there more to it than that yeah it's you know sim- similar same type of terminology like sometimes i like to explain overload uh in in relation to the blockers like putting blockers in a position where they have to make more decisions so you know for example like like let's say we go 60 right side right putting that middle blocker in a situation where it's like oh is it a 60 or is it actually a right side and then putting that right side blocker in the same thing oh am i helping with this is this a 60 no wait it's a right side so the way you said it's perfect i've explained it like that a million times you know sometimes i like to you know like i said depending on the clientele you know i find that you just if you can explain everything in a way in which you can get all 14 athletes to understand, you know, some might understand that way. Some might understand relative to the blockers, you know, Oh, you want to overload the blockers. You want to put those blockers in that zone and you want to, you know, you want to put them in a, basically you want to put them in a tough situation, you know? So lots of ways to explain it, but you know, I like both. I'm a, it's all predicated on your team and your style. You know, I'm a big fan of both. I think depending on your hitters, like, you know, like if you have, a big like a, a good size setter if you have big middles and athletic outsides like overload could be a disaster for other teams you know yeah like you could really put a lot of pressure especially on small setters man i'm I'm big on uh you know i always say i look out for the setters but if there's a small setter there's one thing a small setter does not want to do that they don't want to help block on the 30 or the middle at all without a doubt small without small without setters always want to start their they always want to start their approach early so they can try to get as high as they can on the block yeah, yeah. you know so I always uh, say, hey, if there's a small center, man, there's there's probably nothing better than overload on that side, you know. I agree. All right, let's um let's do a quick recap here, and let me know if I forgot anything. So, I this this interview was good. You know, normally we we I talk about a lot of different things like you know culture and game day and practice plan, which we didn't get a chance to talk to, but I think you can tell a lot of those things based on the conversation that we had. So. 
the, the, the key thing that I think I got out of this interview today was, you know, you said that you want to find two, three, or even four things that you're really good at, um, or that you, or that you need that you need to do those three or four things to win. And how are we going to accomplish that over the course of a season? And we started off by talking about blocking and you say a really, really great quote here. Blocking is challenging. You always do the hardest things on day one because it takes the longest to process. So you, you're a little reverse engineering. You don't wait till they get to that point. You start day one. We're going to do the toughest thing that you're going to have to do on this team, which is blocking. And you start off in, in a phase out approach. Use the word called periodization. For those of you that periodize, actually, is it an international term? I don't know how they do it in the US, but basically periodization just means that it, when you look at a seasonal plan, you have periods, also known as mesocycles, in that period, in that plan that you're going to have a certain amount of weeks blocked out for a certain amount of skill training and development. And as you get closer to competition, you start dialing into more gameplay situation and things like that. And how you, how you separate that is entirely up to you, but that's what periodization means. It's just, you know, periodizing, okay, set blocking off different weeks for certain things and building up to where you want to be in competition. So we started off by talking about uh, phase one of blocking, which is understanding motor patterns, uh, footwork, body position. You know, we teach it, have them break up into small groups, uh, is two courts, and then they go from there. Then phase two is eye sequencing. So now, now we're trying to talk about getting to the right spot by reading and not guessing. Um, then we talk about phase three, which is diving in, sealing the tape, uh, diving in is a situation where it's like one-on-one, -on -one, how are we going to take that, that attacker's uh, option away? Nine out of 10 times is cross court unless you have a scouting report on a player that says otherwise. Uh, then we talked about, after that, we talked about reminding the guys to penetrate, you know, now that we're there and we're jumping, you know, penetrating. And then after that, you get into more systematic stuff like triple blocking, spread blocking, fronting the setter, you know, all these different terminologies and strategies that you can do with blocking. Trap blocking we got into, which is really cool. Uh, just to recap, trap blocking is, you know, if you have a front court setter, you can send the left side to the middle by himself. And then you have two blockers already on the pin setter takes the dump or sorry, libero takes the setter dump uh, straight up. And then um, uh, fire up is a new terminology that I'm going to be using in my gym, which is basically swapping the left side and the setter. When you believe that the high probability shot is going to be a left side attack when you have an undersized setter. So that's an option you can do. Uh, then we transition a little bit to, um, Oh no, before that we talked about uh, the outside and the middle. So outsides using a two-step footwork instead of a three-step footwork. And the reason for that is one, it's shorter distance. And two, um, you know, that 60, 40 rule that you talked about, you know, you want to have your priority. It's, it's help versus priority. I actually really like that. So you prioritize your attacker, which is going to be your pin attacker. And that way you have that, that weight shifted in that direction. So it's just two steps out to the pin and that's your priority. And then you can still help in the middle if needed, but that's your priority. Okay. And then we transition a little bit to offense. Um, and the offense, you know, what? I really like it. It's, it's simple. It's creative in a way what you could do with it. But at the end of the day, it comes down to the, the basic offensive philosophy, which is how do you create the one-on-one -on -one or one-on-nothing? That's, that's the question. How do we create the one-on-one -on -one or one-on-nothing? And basically, there's two ways that you teach your team to do that. One is separation and one is overload. Overload is when you're jamming the same zone to, to free up the one-on-nothing. So for an example of that would be middle goes in for the 51, aka quick attack. Setter goes right over middle. Hopefully that middle blocker bites on that middle attacker, leaving the one on nothing for your uh, pipe hitter, your backcourt player in six. And then we have the separation, which is just simply separating the blockers, making them make decisions. You know, um, way better way of explaining I do is, you know, <laughs> 30 right side or 50 left side. So that means right side gets a one-on-one -on -one if the middle is running a 30. Left side should hopefully get a one-on-one -on -one if the middle is running a 50. All right. And then the last thing um, is, you know, 
when you when you think about the, all of this in hindsight, you got to look at your team and see where your team strengths are and weaknesses and things like that. You know, Jesse talked about he had a team in in twenty eighteen that was huge. You know, a, a player, the smallest guy was a setter who was six two. Everybody else was six five, six eight, six nine, and and in that case, they weren't really focused on speed, but they were focused on making sure that that setter has the ball in their hands with all four hitting options because when they do that, they were probably going to score. Versus a team like you had this year that won a national championship as well where it was much smaller and you had to more focus on speed, creativity in the offense, uh, making sure that you are consistent and efficient in your offense and serving and passing obviously is part of the process, but you know, making sure that you're, you're, you're putting your players in the best position to score because you're going to need that speed to help. Um, so yeah, that was pretty much the interview. Did I miss anything? Anything you want to add to that? No, I think you're pretty good there, man. I think that's just like a, you know, especially with coaches listening, that's just like a, simple skeleton like I don't think I said anything that was profound like I said right. I don't know I don't know anything profound like I always say I don't even know that much about volleyball in general I always laugh I just you know I know my kids I know my team I get to know you know I, I it's all about how well you know them how well you can maximize them you know not only their volleyball ability but you know how, how well you can motivate them as well so you know those are pretty simple skeletons and all things that I've learned from other coaches in the past you know so I just you know use use these tools based on, you know, whatever my clientele is, you know, that year. And then, and then, like I said, maybe all these tools will work. Maybe some will, some won't, maybe I'll need some new ones. You know, I'm always, I'm always trying to do coach development and stuff. I think, I think coaches that are listening here are clearly coaches that are interested in coach development. You know, they wouldn't, I don't think they'd be listening otherwise. Right. Uh, and like I said, they're just some, you know, some pretty standard things that, you know, that you can do and use to, to help out your team. Yeah, I need to have you on again. I know I keep I said that last time because this was like I feel like this is part one because we talked about the technical and the tactical and all that stuff. But I, and I can tell you based on my experience, you know, coaching is like forty percent of our job. Sixty percent of our job is running a program. Like yeah. you and you briefly mentioned like your periodization, your modeling, how you teach your athletes, how you do, you know, and and that's that's something that I work with our coaches inside DVA a lot on is everyone can look up in Google how to teach how to pass how to teach, how to run a system, how to run a pipe, what an overlay. You, you can look this stuff up and learn it on YouTube. What you can't learn on YouTube is how to run a program. And you have significantly been, a, I think, one of the strongest coaches I know in running a program, or you wouldn't be, frankly, winning national championships. So I'm going to leave this as part one, and we're going to do a part two, if you're down, obviously. Uh, oh, we're going to do, do a part two on like culture, You know how, how you run your program, how you structure your programming and practices and all that stuff. Cause that's really, I think that more importantly, that's the art of, 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 of being a successful coach. And I think you've done a phenomenal job at that. And I think that'll be a great interview if you're down. Yeah, no, absolutely. man. And I appreciate that. And I appreciate you. And, and I said it briefly, right. That's why I was laughing. I said, there's going to be coaches in our club that says, Jesse, man, you gave away all the secrets, man. What's wrong with you? Da, 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 da. I'm like, guys, it's and like I said, it's not what it is. It's how you're doing it. It's not, yeah the 60 40 it's how you're relaying the message to the kid it's how you're making your setter understand it that's why i can sit there and give the book of secrets away i can leave it up i can leave it at the bench at my next tournament someone can pick it up like i would never be worried you know it's 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 you have to know your kids know your team yeah it's and you have to build the club culture you have to build all that stuff yeah. i was you know i remember our last podcast i think was we talked about building championship culture yes we it's did funny we had a couple of kids uh, we had a couple of coaches that uh, made our kids listen to that leading up to provincials i remember i shot you a message i thought that was pretty cool but no i always appreciate what you do here you know giving coaches a platform like you know you give me a platform uh so of course man i'd love to come back and 
and chat, you know, chatting volleyball is easy, right? We could do this, you know, know, we could do this for hours. You know, this is not, it's not Joe Rogan where it's four and a half hour podcast, I but, know. but it could, you know, it's funny. It could be if we kept going, but no, I, you know, I'd, I'd happily enjoy to come back. We can, you know, I think it's cool for people to, to kind of know those other things too. Right. Cause like I said, you, you could know, you could know all the right things. You could even be given a seasonal plan of the X's and O's. That's right. But like That's I said, right. how are you relaying it? How are you saying it? What terminology are you using? That's what right. tone? What tone of voice are you using? Like, I can't That's even right. explain how those things uh, are so valuable. That's that's really the majority the, the majority of it, right? That's really like ninety percent, man. The ten percent is just the skeleton of, yeah, That's we right. know at eighteen U, we know you need to get a block. Like, like everything I said, I, yeah, of course, eighteen U, you have to get a blocking. You have to run pipes and sea balls. You have to have yeah. a good offense. You have to be like trap blocking stuff here. You know, I think every team and every coach knows that, you know, but yeah, it's all the other cool stuff. And, you know, I'd love to chat with you about that one day. Yeah. Yeah. You can, I, I honestly, everything you said, I, I echo all the time. And I think the more coaches understand that, the better that they'll get. And I, and I'm me too. I'm, I'm still learning, man. I'm, I'm so young in this game that I got another 20. I've been coaching for 17 years, but I still got another 25 unless I, unless easy. I lose joy for this thing. We'll see. Um, easy, any easy. last minute uh, thoughts, anything you want to share with the, with the listeners before I let you go? I think we're good. No, I've, you know, whoever listened to this, I appreciate it. I appreciate you. You know, I've been, uh, I've been getting a lot of love uh, as of late guys like you have been helping, but just, you know, having some success and stuff, it's cool, right? Like, you know, you coached help the kids and, and all that, but you know, I've been getting a lot of coaches in Ontario messaging me, reaching out, congratulating me and stuff like that. And I know yeah. things like this podcast help. I know, I know you have a really big reach. So, you know, I've had a lot of people, I spoke with a coach a few weeks ago saying that they, 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 they listen to our podcast because they're part of your academy, you know, and they, nice. they, they're interested in maybe coaching. So I was like, you know, hey, if nice. you're, if you're learning, you're learning in the right place, it sounds like you'd be a good coach. So no, I appreciate you and I appreciate everyone that's, you know, been, been incredibly supportive. So same thing, buddy. I'm here for another 20, 30, maybe 40 years. So yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, man. And to our listeners, I hope you got some value out of today's episode. This is one of those episodes where you might have to re-listen to this a couple of times because there was so much nuggets. Like, I mean, in terms of all the terms and systems and strategy, this was a really heavy, high-level conversation on strategy and tactics, which I think is fan like fantastic. So thank you so much, listeners, for another episode. Um, And I will catch you guys next week on another episode of the Volleyball by Design Podcast. Take care. All right. Cue the music. Look, are you at the stage you want to be in your volleyball journey? How would it feel to get clarity on your training and instead of taking months to get better, you could improve in weeks, if not days? When I was a young coach and player, I felt this way all the time. The truth is, after I got some great advice on how to be efficient, my learning curve grew exponentially. Let me show you how to be more efficient and effective in this game. I invite you to check out CoachBTraining.com for more resources that you can use to take your game to the next level. I look forward to helping you reach your volleyball goals.